take first watch. Hello, welcome to an all new episode of the First Watch Podcast. I'm Zach and I'm here with Cole. How are you? Exhausted. How about you? Exhausted. Why? We just had a film festival sweep for town, so ah. I've seen a lot in the past week. I see. You know, it's like up and down with the weather here. It's like frigid cold. It's been raining. So I've just been indoors with my books. Mm. I read a nice book about the production history of the MCU, which was very informative and enlightening. Lots of interesting tidbits there. And then uh, mm. I read the book that our subject of today's episode is based on, adapted from, and that is David Grant's Killers of the Flower Moon, which is obviously the basis for the latest and greatest Martin Scorsese picture, Mm -hmm. which is the topic of our episode today. But before we get into that, since you have been so busy, why don't you tell us what you have been catching up with recently? All right, so let's break it down. Tuesday, I went to an advanced screening of The Holdovers, the latest comedy drama from director Alexander Payne. It's set in 1970 at a New England boarding school, and it focuses on this Ebenezer Scrooge-esque history teacher, played by Paul Giamatti, who ends up having to look after a held-over student over the Christmas holidays. The student's a troublemaker. He's played by Dominic Sessa. First acting role. Yeah. They just pluck this kid off the streets of Boston. And their only companion is a grieving mother who lost her son in Vietnam. She's played by Divine Joy Randolph, who just started the Oscar campaign for her now. Oh, wow. Support actress, I would say. I'm not a fan of Alexander Payne, but I really, really, really dug this one. He's got a few that I definitely like, Election. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's been his last few, right? Downsizing, The Descendants, Nebraska. Nebraska. Yeah. Kind of tough territory. Yeah, Nebraska's okay. I feel like this one could definitely become like a cult holiday classic. Yeah. It's got that great wintry vibe, especially being set in Massachusetts. Yeah. Lots of great accent work. Lots of region-specific jokes about wintertime. It was a lot of fun. This screened here on Sunday afternoon, and unfortunately, I had to miss it. So I'm looking forward to when it comes out. I think it's not next week, but the week after. Veterans Day weekend is when it comes out. Yeah. And then Wednesday, AFI Fest started. That's the American Film Institute. A lot of our best and brightest filmmakers have gone to school there. And every year at the end of October, beginning of November, they have a film festival running for about five days over at the TCL Chinese Multiplex. So they run this festival and they have like over 100 films in the course of the five days. I wish it was a little longer because there's always so much stuff I want to see. And then yeah. it just ends up on the cutting room floor. There's only so much stamina for this kind of thing, I find. You it know, gets a little draining. Strategically plotting out. How do I fit this all in in the schedule? Not go crazy. It's tough. First film I saw was Green Border, a political drama film from the filmmaker Agnesia Holland that focuses on the refugee crisis at the Polish-Belarusian border, specifically back in 2021. And it splits the story between a family of Syrian refugees who have fled their homeland, accompanied by an Afghan woman fleeing Kabul because of the fall of Afghanistan and the rise of the Taliban. And it also focuses on a Polish border guard suffering a crisis of confidence in his job and the horrible, horrible things he does. And also a group of volunteer activists in Poland who risk imprisonment by going out to these refugees in the woods where they're trying to find any kind of sanctuary by giving them medical supplies, food, clothing, getting them in contact with lawyers who could get them refugee status in Poland. And the thing about this film is that it caused quite the political firestorm over in Poland upon its release. 
to the point where the director was, one, publicly attacked in Warsaw, two, routinely criticized by the government and compared to a Nazi for making a propaganda film about how evil Poland was treating refugees, which is a very, very bold claim to make. Yeah. The film itself is solid. One of those things where the first takeaway you have is how draining it is, especially in its first hour when it's focusing on this family of Syrian refugees. There's a lot of them being pushed back and forth over the border into Belarus, over the border into Poland, being mistreated, abused, physically attacked. I mean, these are things that have absolutely happened that are continuing to happen because of this refugee crisis where nobody wants to take responsibility or to even treat them like humans. And then on Friday, I went to Evil Does Not Exist, which is the latest film from Ryosuke Hamaguchi, director of Drive My Car. Yep. Absolutely love this one. It's an ecological drama. It focuses on Takumi, a jack-of-all-trades, and his young daughter, Hannah. And they live in Mitsubiki Village, which is this quiet, idyllic place close to Tokyo, where everyone lives as part of a close-knit community. It's very small, very rural, not worrying about modern civilization. However, the community gets interrupted when a corporation decides that they want to build a glamping site right smack in the middle of the village, which would also poison the water supply. But Hamaguchi's characterization of these people means that they're not cartoon villains. Mm -hmm. I found this to be really, really interesting. And I won't say where it goes, but it takes a really shocking turn that I think adds a whole other layer to it. And then on Saturday, I saw Perfect Days, the latest narrative film from director Vim Fenders, you know, Wings of Desire, Paris, Texas. A lot of people have called this his best narrative film since the 80s, and I would be inclined to agree. It focuses on the daily routine of Hiriyama, played by Koji Yashuko, who's a toilet cleaner in Tokyo, who loves his daily routine of getting up, taking care of his plants, going to work, cleaning the toilets, helping out tourists and residents, going to the same noodle shop for dinner, going home, reading Faulkner until he falls asleep, waking up, doing it all over again. And when he's interrupted by someone from his past, there's more details about his life that's revealed. I found this to be a very lovely film. Just nice, quiet, and still really focusing on the daily routines and just on the minutia of life. So I would highly recommend that one whenever it gets released. I think Neon's distributing it, so I'm sure it'll get play. What was the last movie that he made? (sighs) I don't even know. Like, I've seen other stuff besides his big two, but yeah, it's all earlier. I mean, he's a busy guy, but like nothing's really popped off in a way that this one has. Yeah. Like the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, I don't even really recognize these titles from the 21st century, I'm sorry to say. I know there's like a dancing documentary in there. Yeah. That was shot in Treaty. And then also on Saturday, I saw La Quimera, which is a romantic drama from the director of Happy as Lazaro and last year's Oscar-nominated short film, Les Bouvilles, Alice Rogwalker, and it focuses on Arthur played by Josh O'Connor, a British archaeologist slash grave robber, with the merry crew of Tombaroli, who make their living by finding Etruscan graves and breaking into them and taking any of the antiquities that they could get, pottery, jewelry. And the movie focuses on his struggle and his dissatisfaction with his lifestyle, considering he wanted to be an archaeologist, although in many ways the jobs used to be one and the same. Mm-hmm. And this whole time he's seeking out his long-lost love, Bene Amina, they insist that she's dead, but her mother, played by Isabella Rossellini, mm. says otherwise. And it's kind of this blend of magical realism in a way that I found very entertaining. It's a gorgeous movie to look at. You know, I mean, it's set in Italy. Of course, it's going to be beautiful. Right. But a really great blending of the past and the present and what it means to have these connections to long ago 
and when you need to let go of them, and some things are just not meant for eyes to see. Really lovely film. I hope more people see it. I think that one's also being distributed by Neon. And then finally, Sunday, I went to a screening of Priscilla. Ooh. This was not part of the festival. It's already opened up in New York and LA. This one's written and directed by Sofia Coppola, and it focuses on the life and times of Priscilla Bullio, better known as Priscilla Presley, particularly when she was married to Elvis, the king of rock and roll. And it starts off from when they were first courting, when she was 14 and he was 24, to the time when she finally left his ass in the early 70s. I'll save most of my thoughts on this for another time, but I absolutely love this one. I'm excited to hear that. I'm seeing this one Thursday when it opens up here, and I'm intrigued on a number of different levels. I think the two angles that I'll be looking for the most are how does this conform to this idea that you and I have been talking about? Like We just had a Elvis biopic. It was nominated for all kinds of Oscars. Didn't win any of them. <laughs> But it was nominated for a bunch. And it represents the glitz, glamour, and ostentatious opulence of Baz Luhrmann. Whereas this is clearly a lot moodier and within the style of Sofia Coppola. Feels like her biggest movie in a minute, probably since The Beguiled. I would say so. On the Rocks kind of came well, and went. That was 2020. And, you know, nothing in 2020 counts. Yeah. I think that one was also an Apple original. So, yeah. I mean, today's is an Apple original, so how far we've come, I guess. Yeah. But I'm really intrigued. I think the second thing that I'm interested in is going to be, it really feels like the influence of Pablo Lorraine is being felt in these biopics in good ways, like in his own film, Spencer, and in not so good ways with like Bond, I think has some similarities. But I really think that that started to kind of have its thumbprint all over how we approach these exploration of characters who maybe we know through images or album covers or what have you Mm -hmm. and then kind of getting inside of that a little bit and questioning what was really going on not not just like what was really going on the gossip but like what it feels like to be behind those big fake eyelashes yeah the movie dives a lot into the hyper feminine image she had falsies and the eyeliner and the black hair all elvis's idea just another one of his many ways that he controlled her. Priscilla is played by Kaylee Spani. She won Best Actress at Venice. And if she keeps on popping up at award season next year, I would not be surprised at all. The other real surprise for this, for me, was Jacob Elordi, who plays Elvis. He's best known for starring as toxic boyfriend Nate Jacobs on the TV show Euphoria, which is a show that has... Um, uh, I'm taking a pass. I just no thanks. Yeah. I've seen some of that dude's I've seen his movie on Netflix, you know, with Zendaya. <laughs> it did not make me think I needed to go stop what I was doing and catch up with Euphoria. The idol doesn't really make Ooh, me think that I need to go catch up with Euphoria. So mm-hmm. But yeah, no. The guy is taking the time off from Euphoria to get busy and work with really interesting directors. Mm-hmm. Sofia Coppola, Paul Schrader, Emerald Fennel, for those of y'all. Like yeah. her. Yeah. Not me, but you do yeah. you. She's got a new one coming, right? Barry yeah, Saltburn. Yeah. Sure. I'm sure I'll see it. I'll absolutely see it. <laughs> if you get me started on Promising Young Woman, we won't get to Killers of the Flower Moon before midnight. Oh, so. dear God. <laughs> so Priscilla, I thought was absolutely phenomenal. Loved it. Highly recommend going out to see it. And then I went back to AFI Fest to close out by watching About Dry Grasses, the latest film from Mary Bilge Thalon. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is that in a 
remote village in Anatolia. And it's about this young art teacher accused of an inappropriate relationship with a student. And he slides into an existential crisis because at least from what we've seen, he hasn't done anything too bad. Although personally, I think he's a creep and a scumbag. But he's being forced to reckon with that fact a little bit, I would say. If you love nearly three and a half hour movies with a lot of talking, literally, this is absolutely ask. for you. I was just going to ask, is this movie over three hours long and fucking not shit happens in it? It is 197 minutes and nothing happens. Yeah, that's... I've seen two films by this director, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, which I think is broadly considered his best. And then Uzak, I think is the name of the other one, which translates to distance. Safely... He's not for me so far. Uh, I've given it the old college try. You know, there's sparse and slow moving. And then there's like, you know, there's a lot of shit where it's just a car driving down a road. And yeah, like you said, people will be talking, but they're not even really having a conversation or anything that would be like cinematic dialogue. They're just bullshitting, (laughs) which, you know, did you enjoy this? Oh, I did. I thought it was pretty good. Not my favorite of his by any means. My favorite would be Winter Sleep, which is his Palm Bayor winner. But overall, I thought this was a solid way to close out the fest. For sure. Oh, and then in between all of this, I also watched Five Nights at Freddy on Peacock. I sucked. <laughs> oh, oh. The Five Nights at Freddy's thing is funny to me on a few levels. Like, it's a day and date streamer that's going to make a shitload of money in theaters. In part, because what the fuck is Peacock? I keep asking. They keep telling me they have Minions movies, Jurassic movies. Oh, fuck, I don't know. Well, don't forget the Fast and Furious movies. Uh, there you go. All 10 of them. 11 if you count Hobbs and Shaw. <laughs> yeah, so I went to go and see a double feature last Thursday. I use that double feature loosely. What I mean is I saw two movies at the same day. That was the opening night for Five Nights at Freddy's. So at both theaters, there were just people in costumes, taking pictures by the poster out in the concessions. And I was like, put up just walking to the auditoriums, which both of mine were like way in the back of the theater. It's just <laughs> abandoned. But before that, I saw a movie that I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about next week because you'll have had a chance to see it by then. Are you going to go see The Killer? Sometime. I'm going to see it sometime. I knew that in LA they were doing some Q&A thing. I wasn't sure that if you... Would... Yeah, it sold out like immediately I and I didn't get a chance on it. Yeah, I was thinking if you didn't do that right away, then it probably wasn't available. So you might be seeing this when the rest of the world is seeing it. So I'll go ahead and give it a little bit of a proper run out here. This is an adaptation of a comic book, which I have not read and don't know a terrible lot about other than to say most people describe it as a fairly simplistic hitman story. Mm -hmm. And the plot of David Fincher's The Killer follows a nameless assassin played by Michael Fassbender. And we open up with him in an assignment in Paris, where we learn that he is basically God's perfect assassin. He has a 1000 batting rate. He's never missed up a mark. He's incredibly expensive to try to pay. And the reason for that is because he's very perfectionistic and patient. As we learn, as we sit with him for a very, 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 very long time while he waits to complete this job which he has been paid to do. Mm. And in the fashion of such classic movies as Le Samurai, Thief, Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive, what happens but he gets double-crossed because of a job gone wrong, and he decides that he's going to exact vengeance on the people who tried to bump him off after the job gone wrong. Mm -hmm. Very like classic plot stuff to the point that there really is not a lot of story to this movie at all. And in fact, 
I think it kind of hinges on two things. One is that it's all process. As I mentioned in that opening scene, it's just like, it is a lot of waiting. Mm -hmm. It's like looking through the windows, waiting for the thing. Okay, here comes the package. Now we got to look over here and do this. We got to come up with a scheme to get in this building. So I'm going to go to the hardware store and buy a trash can and paint a recycling logo on the trash can so that I can sneak my way into the building. It's all process like that. And then the second thing is that I think it's sort of like a Tyler Durden, no, not Tyler Durden, like the narrator of Fight Club, where he's like talking to himself all the time, Uh except I think this guy's kind of a stand-in for Fincher himself, but like in an exaggerated, almost like erotic sort of way. Mm -hmm. It's a really strange movie. I've been chewing on it a lot because I think I would say this, formally, it's exquisite. It looks amazing. It moves amazing. It sounds amazing. It's probably going to look like shit on Netflix, but what can you do? narratively i think it's a total fucking dud i think it's kind of boring to be honest but then like in terms of the theme and the idea it kind of winds up coming back around to being interesting even in spite of that i'm really curious what you'll think of it because i think your reaction is going to tell me if i'm being too nice about it because i love the way that it looks and i love some of its set pieces or if i'm kind of on the right track because you'll be like no this is sort of like a back to basics thriller cool Kind of thing but i think most people are not gonna find it to be like you know that david fincher crowd pleaser i think it's much more anticlimactic and weird and funny and bizarre and like kind of like dark and fucked mm. up i really don't know i don't think people are going to respond to it terribly well because i don't think that netflix is going to do much to support what i find to be its biggest strengths uh-huh. this is playing in theaters around here now so i'm going to try to get to it sometime Importantly, the Egyptian theater is finally reopening. Mm. So Netflix movies are going to be getting at least some theatrical run around here for a couple of weeks. I know that they're playing Maestro from November 22nd to December 9th. Right. So. We'll be suffering through that one. Yeah. I figure, <laughs> you know, if I'm going to see the Netflix movies, at least the major ones, I might as well see them in a theater. Yeah. And that's easily the best place to do it. It's a gorgeous place. I'm so happy it's back. I definitely recommend doing that if you have interest in seeing the killer go out and support it in theaters and get that experience it reunites him with the cinematographer of mank which i understand could be kind of a contentious topic between the two of us but this subject matter in color hitman procedurally oriented neon reflecting on the city streets of paris slicked with rain gorgeous i mean it looks fucking incredible in digital so that was the second part of my double feature the first movie that i saw as I already mentioned, and as we teased on some previous episodes when Cole saw it, was Justine Triette's Anatomy of a Fall. Palm d'Or winner for this year, which tells the story of a family living in rural France, a mother, a father, and a son in the aftermath of an accident where the father was found dead on the ice with a big bump on his head and three little drops of blood on the shed next to him. Call the cops. Cops arrive. We do a little investigation. Some of the facts aren't adding up. The woman, who is herself a writer, we find that she's not told the truth about every little thing that they've asked her. And there's just enough things not falling into place that they decide to indict her and put her on trial to see if, in fact, the husband jumped to his death committing suicide, if he fell to his death in an accident, or if he was bludgeoned on the head, pushed to his death as a homicide. And caught in the middle of this is their young son, Daniel, 
who has been blinded at an earlier point before the story in an accident, who has to reckon with not only the death of his father, but the fact that his mother is being put on trial for potentially murdering his father. And what happens to him, what happens to her, and most importantly, what happens to their relationship as... Most importantly, what happens to their dog. (laughs) (laughs) What a movie. This is a two and a half hour, John. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion going around about intermissions and bathroom breaks. I am not of the steel bladder plan such as you are, but I sat my ass down and listened for all two and a half hours of this one. Because I was just from the opening steel drums of PIMP through the final closing credit with the dog on the bed. It's some of the fastest two and a half hours you'll see all here. I was just like riveted. This was exhilarating to me, like on paper, the idea of like, oh, somebody's dead. Did the wife do it? It's such a trope in Mm -hmm. noir and crime fiction. That during the trial, they make fun of what a trope it is, and they're making jokes about Stephen King. This just does not play with that at all. In fact, I almost think like for as much of this movie as like a legal drama and investigative drama, the real meat is about how these people, including like the defense attorney, how they all react to this stuff and how they all change the way they treat each other and look at each other changes through just learning these facts that are part of a marriage. The relationship becomes an open book for everybody to read and everybody to speculate on. Say it's more interesting when a writer kills her husband than when some teacher just kills himself. We're about to talk about what is maybe shaping up to be the front runner for the best actress race. But the lead actress here, Sandra Huller, who's also in the zone of interest, dynamite. Mm-hmm. I mean, incredible performance on every level. There's a lot of it where she has to perform monologues. She's performing much of this in English, a little bit of it in French. She's a German immigrant who lived in London, learned English, so she speaks those two languages fluently. But then she moved to France to be with her husband, where she doesn't really speak this language. And so she's just kind of playing this outsider who is trying to be loving towards her son, placating towards the right people, defending herself when she has to, and navigating all of this just kind of alone out there in the snow everything revolves around how strong that mm-hmm. lead performance is absolutely she is incredible in this the son who is played by Ilo machado Graner, who i've never seen in anything before doesn't have much of a filmography to speak of i think child performances can sometimes be like a huge fucking drag mm-hmm. in a movie but this kid's incredible it sort of hit me 30 40 minutes into it how good he was like, oh, wow, yeah, you know, he's doing a great job here. And then just from that point on, if you're focused in on him, you almost start to realize how much he's the main character, how much what's happening to mm-hmm. him, what he's learning, experiencing, and how that's all hitting him. That's really the meat of the film. That's really like what the emotional journey is. When you see certain things that are reenacted, they're like imagined or envisioned inside of his mind based on what he's hearing. And this comes to a head in like really cool and interesting ways. Like probably the most notable is an argument scene that happens between the husband and wife, which is played on an audio clip. And then we see a scene, which is a representation of that. And it's not really clear if what we're seeing it's Rashomon. It's not really clear if what we're seeing is like, is this what really happened? Is this a visualization based on what the kid in the pew is imagining? Mm-hmm. I love how this movie really takes no easy way out of any of this Mm -hmm. whatever the verdict is nothing 
goes back to being normal. Mm -hmm. We set all the pieces back into place, but they are still fragmented and fractured. I think it's about how death, no matter what, is like this fracture point. And in this case, what happens is all these things that might have been boiling up with this couple just become open and public to their child specifically, but just also to everyone else. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they just sort of have to look inward and reflect. And then I think something that you brought up to me, which was the inspiration of this movie, the Amanda Knox case, yeah. which I think clearly it's about that suspicion, a language barrier and a cultural barrier and the way that we look at women in certain mm -hmm. situations. Oh, yeah. Great movie. There's a lot to talk about. It's a phenomenal piece of work. One of the great dog performances ever by Snoop. Amazing dog. Yeah. Palm de Og winning performance. I do think that this would make a good double with last year's Saint Omer, which is another oh, yeah. French court movie that's like even a little bit more deeply rooted in stereotyping, particularly it's about women and it's about a Senegalese woman, I think would make a really thoughtful pair of just how weird and fucked up French court can be. Last thing I'll say is funniest film of the year. Mm, right now, the New Yorgos Lanthimos would probably be my pick because I so much of what I enjoyed about it was like laugh out loud. There definitely is a lot of good stuff with anatomy. I think David Fincher's The Killer is actually really far up there. Hmm. It's not really so much the scripted jokes in that one that land in Killer. There's like a lot of stuff that's like very modern techno culture jokes that are like okay boomer a little uh -huh. bit. But there's also a lot of jokes where it's just like grim, funny Michael Fassbender being a bumbling assassin things happening. Mm -hmm. That just really made me laugh. So those would be my picks. I think one of my biggest questions about Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon is, is it a funny movie? It has moments where you can't help but laugh because what's happening is so horrifying. It definitely is a movie that has a lot of very effective humor, lots of laugh-worthy moments, and I probably only laughed at 20 to 30% of them. Because for the other 70 to 80% of them, I was like, mm, all right. But most of them did elicit a pretty good crowd response. Before we fully tilt into this movie, I do want to follow my own rule here. Shout very quickly, a new five-star movie that I watched, which is the second five-star movie that I watched by the director, Max Ophels, hey. the German director came to America during the war, eventually went back to France, where he made a run of his most successful films. I watched two by him from the late 1940s, which mm -hmm. were made in America. I just watched one last night called The Reckless Moment, which has Joan Bennett, James Mason. It's kind of a noir. It's pretty hamstrung by how noirish it is, but it has these really great little Ophel's flourishes where the romance all comes together and connects, and it's the forbidden bad boy versus, you know, I gotta be the domestic mom in mm -hmm. rural or not even rural America. She lives in California. So the five-star movie that I watched was Letter from an Unknown Woman starring Joan Fontaine, which just was fucking monumental. Mm -hmm. I actually popped it on because it's just an 80-minute movie. It's so quick, but it is just such a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous movie where they used, you know, that Hollywood studio system yep. to create a Viennese setting where the movie takes place. It is about a young girl who develops an infatuation with a pianist and really tries to go after him, but finds that he's always interested in other women. He eventually gets married, and so she moves on with her family until she realizes that she won't marry anybody but this person, runs back to Vienna, starts up a whirlwind romance with this married man, which of course is doomed, never goes anywhere. He leaves. 
she ends up getting married to a respectable person. And then she leaves her husband again for this guy because she just has this burning desire. And it's just like Madame de, it's a sort of a portrait of this duel between duty and passion. And I don't know, it's just, there's something in the way that he directs these films. It's not just the camera movements and the gorgeous black and white. It's the way that there is just a living charm and passion and pain and mm-hmm. sadness to all of them that just comes together so beautifully. Yeah, Guy is one of a kind. He just makes the best fucking romantic melodramas. I cannot wait to watch the rest of them. I loved your message that you said anybody would fall in love with Joan Fontaine. And I was like, I can think of someone prominent who would very, very, very much disagree. <laughs> She just is so instant to me. And it's this way in Rebecca, too, which is one of the reasons why Rebecca's always been a favorite of mine, even though I think it has certain issues in the way that Hitchcock directs that movie. Mm-hmm. It's just so easy to fall in with her as the Madame de Winter. Yeah. You're just like, yeah, of course, as she kind of stumbles blindly around this world. And I think in this Ophuls movie, it's kind of important because she's kind of a fool yeah. doing foolish, idiotic dumb shit mm-hmm. but you need to go with her in this fairy tale logic that the movie has i think it helps that the director max ophuls is such a big influence on number one stanley kubrick mm-hmm. you can see it really really strongly in lolita see it really really strongly in barry linden which i know you're going to go see soon on 35 mm-hmm. millimeter which i saw yeah. earlier in the year and then scorsese most notably on the age of innocence 1993 oh, yeah. so bringing us back to the man in question, the 80-year-old on the streak of his career, dropping the first of two David Grant adaptations, because I believe he's doing The Wager next. Yep, that's been locked down as his text feature. I know Leo's supposed to be in it, I think. I don't think there's a studio deal yet. I just hope that any studio would cough up whatever money he wants. At this point, you know, you're making something that is going to be one of the final films of Martin Scorsese. Let's put it that way. Even if he makes 10 more it will be, you know, the final chapter, the closing bits of mm-hmm. what he's doing. And I don't imagine that he's going to do too many more three and a half hour movies because Jesus Christ, what this production must take out of a person right. at any age, let alone at age 80. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Each one of these is precious. Don't be the person that holds that up. I wanted to actually talk a little bit about that because I do think it's interesting. The change in hands you were talking to me today about Apple and that relationship that we were talking about between who the main character is for this movie originally he was working on this over at paramount and it was supposed to be focused on tom white and the creation of the fbi just what the book by david grant is mainly about it focuses really on that the main story of the osage and the systemic murder of them is more on the side of things however when scorsese was working on this and writing the script with eric roth he realized the importance of needing to focus this story on the Osage, on the people who suffered from this. The real crucial part of that is giving them this platform. Nobody else is going to give them a voice, frankly, and Hollywood's not going to give an Osage filmmaker $200 million to tell this story. They're only going to give it to somebody like Scorsese. Scorsese knew he had to use his voice this way in order to lift up that platform. And that's when Paramount got spooked and they were like, you build this as sellable on the FBI true crime angle. And they got scared about telling this story this way. So that's when Apple stepped in to co-produce. And Apple doesn't have to worry about money. It's not like a Netflix situation where, you know, Netflix was handing over $250 million for the Irishman. 
Apple was able to hand out money and get this a theatrical release and everything. Because Apple, as we know, has more money than God. Right. And I don't mean monopoly money like Netflix. I mean real, honest-to-God cash. Right. They can pour whatever money they want into any passion project right. and any prestige picture. It's the same kind of thing that we see with Amazon. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, there's The Lost City of Z is based on a David Grant book by James yeah. Gray. So that's an example. Mm-hmm. And that is one of their earliest film productions over at Amazon. And I think one of the interesting things is that, like, to me... Bezos and Amazon are almost like the fucking Barry Lyndon of film productions. They seem to get really squeezed. Suddenly their projects cost in like the $300 million range all the time. Yeah. Admittedly, I think part of that is because there's like fucked up weird deals with streaming where people don't get like, you can't take the points on Avengers like Robert Downey Jr. did. You get paid your whole salary because there isn't like the whole box office receipts. That's why the budgets are more expensive. Everything has to be like this upfront payment to an actor. And if you get anybody like a Leonardo DiCaprio, just anybody that's a star, you're going to pay them through the fucking nose. Because they know that if this was a theatrical release, this is why Scarlett Johansson gets mad when the movie Black Widow Mm -hmm. is going to be on streaming, not theaters, because her deal dictates that she gets a percentage of those movies. Right. And that's why she files in court. And that's why Emma Stone gets mad too. Because of what happened with Corella. As we've mentioned, today's topic is Killers of the Flower Moon, as Cole has just mentioned. It is a reworked version of David Grant's book. I don't even know if that's totally fair to Grant. Like, I do think Tom White is the driving force of that book. But if we go by its sections, there is an earlier section that's sort of like before Tom gets there, and there's a section that's after his investigation that are about things that fall outside of the purview of his investigation. But then the bulk of it is really about research. It's about investigation. It actually reminds me a lot of Grace Smith's Zodiac Killer book, as well as the David Fincher film Zodiac. And I'm talking about Grant's book here reminds Mm -hmm. me of that because of the way that Grant himself comes into the story. And it's about him going to Osage County meeting with different people, doing his own research. That reminds me a lot of Robert Graysmith. Mm. Scorsese is not going to make a movie about David Grant's research into this. Because unlike Robert Graysmith, he did not used to work at the San Francisco Chronicle with Paul Avery, and thus he does not have the personal swirling connection. And I suppose the other reason is because with the Zodiac, it's an unsolved case. Mm -hmm. And so you have to make it about something other than that. You have to make it about something bigger and broader to tell a good story and adapting the book one-to-one would be a disaster no doubt and i think here we've found a really fascinating focus that reframes how you should be thinking about every single piece of the story because we are really focused on the burkharts particularly ernest burkhart played by leonardo dicaprio who is according to the film in world war one that he was a cook Mm -hmm. and he's very very devoted to his uncle whose name is William Hale, who he comes to stay with in Osage County, where he becomes a cab driver, where he meets his future wife, the other subject of the film, Molly, who becomes Mrs. Molly Burkhart. And they become the center of this film. They are how we explore every turn of its plot, every revelation along the way. But what's interesting about this is that Ernest and Molly have different levels of awareness. Because Molly is more or less, I mean, I don't want to call her clueless. She's very aware that 
something wrong is going on during this reign of terror, mm-hmm. as is everybody else when the bodies start piling up. But she is unaware of what Ernest is aware of, yeah. which is Ernest's involvement, <laughs> along yeah. with his brother and his uncle and goddamn near every motherfucker in the towns of Greyhorse and Pawuska. Every single Caucasian vulture. So the background on this is that when the Osage settled in Oklahoma after being forced out there by the United States government over the course of several decades, they landed on a reservation that was just dripping in oil. Like, you know, you could just step somewhere and oil spurred out of the ground. So they became incredibly rich. Yes. But the United States still wanted to find ways to control that because they were like, we can't let Native Americans have money. Can't let them have power, wealth, none of that. Uh uh uh. So they set limits, they set head rights. You had to have a white representative to control your fortune. And white people, crucially, could marry into these families. And, you know, if all of the other members of the family somehow end up dead, congrats, you're a rich white man. This fascinated me. So the basis of the deal that the Osage tribe struck was genius because they negotiated for the mineral rights to their land, which meant that every ounce of oil that was drilled out of it, no matter who owned the land, would go to the Osage through these head rights in perpetuity, forever. And so what you have is not only a percentage of the oil money that's coming to them, but the exorbitant prices that they can charge for these tracts of land where the oil barons come and bid a million dollars in 1920s money mm-hmm. to go and drill on a land that may or may not have any fucking oil on it, by the way, because <laughs> not every tract of land is going to be successful. And then that brings in this windfall of commerce. They build up the city. It goes from being this one-horse town with a couple ramshackle buildings in the muddy streets of this native land that is part of the reservation. It's federal land that's been allocated. And it suddenly becomes, like so many other places in the American South and Southwest, a boom town mm-hmm. where everybody flocks in. One such person was Bill Hale, who was a cattleman who actually came before the oil boom. He came to this Osage country, built himself up a house. He was in the cattle industry. Surely, based on what we eventually come to know about him, he was doing a lot of dirty dealings and shit like that and made himself into a very successful businessman. Mm -hmm. And one of the keys to this was that unlike every other white person, he befriended the Osage. He learned their language. He helped bring commerce, hospitals, education, taught English, did everything that he could to be this civic ally of the Osage people. And in general, made himself like an indispensable part of this community. He got to sit on their inner council meetings. He was the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing. And when I mean wolf, I mean wolf. This entire time recognizes that you can do anything you want to these people and no one will punish you. Mm -hmm. This is in a very, very real sense. I'm going a little bit more off the book here, but I think the movie's about this too. The last vestige of the Wild West, yeah. which is the significance in the book of Tom White and like him being a Texas Ranger and all that stuff is that they come in here and they're like, Jesus, <laughs> this is not normal for the 1920s. We're talking mm-hmm. about the period of speculation, F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, this era of American prosperity, mm-hmm. opulence, decadence, basically right before the Great Depression. So right. this is not the time of the Wild West anymore. We have gone all the way to the border. We got San Francisco. 
the Pinkerton Detective Agency has opened up over there. Like, this is for all intents and purposes the 20th century. This is modern yeah. America. Here. John Wayne has seen his final sunset. And yeah, native people are still being shot in the streets, and then the crimes are not investigated for them. Or they get a native person intoxicated, get a medical report on that person, shoot him up full of morphine so that he dies, and then they say, well, he died of alcohol poisoning. See, we got a record of that right here. And it's this humongous, community-wide conspiracy that goes so deep and so far beyond any one individual person. And that is what I think is the significance of framing this story on Ernest Burkhart in particular. Because I think there's a lot of stuff that we can talk about framing it on Molly Burkhart and Lizzie and her daughters, Molly's sisters, and the Osage community. But focusing it on Ernest is a much more challenging thing to deal with, I think. Because it takes us away from your Jordan Belfort, it takes us away from your Henry Hill, and it puts us firmly in the court of Rupert Pupkin and Jake LaMotta for just low-down despicable. This is the least sympathetic main character in Scorsese's entire career. Take a second, roll that thought over in your mouth a little. The most disgusting, dirty little lowlife. Just a little worm. And I think that is the question that you have to ask yourself over the course of the three and a half hours. It's like, why is the main character of this movie this guy? And I think it has a lot to do with complicity with evil. It's not about evil and evil schemes and how deep and complex they get. It's about how simple cab drivers, doctors, coroners, lawyers, businessmen, bankers, that's who makes up a conspiracy. You know, it's the guy at the morgue selling you inflated casket prices so that an Osage funeral costs five times Mm -hmm. the normal price. It's that. That is who this story is about. The average everyday person who just lets it happen. It's not just one guy pulling all the strings. It's not just William Hale boarding around, parading over everyone. It's that everyone feeds into it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that is only as well expressed as it is by giving us this main character of Ernest. Because if you focus it on Tom White, and I think Grant gets to this too at the book, everything points to Hale. His investigation is about like the kingpin, the leader, the guy. And if anything, from White's perspective, this is too far ahead in the plot, but Burkhart becomes an instrumental part of the criminal case that brings these guys down. So you could mm-hmm. almost make the case that Burkhart comes out looking pretty good because he has this moment of conscience later. But I think this film sees through that. And the only yeah. reason it's able to see through that is because we spend the first two hours with this wretched piece of shit. You see every single rotten little act he does, setting up murders. Many of which are very funny. <laughs> Some of them are shocking. There's one bit where they get three guys and they do a stick up of some Osage people. They steal all their jewelry. And then he immediately goes and loses it all at the gambling table. He's got no brain cells up there. He's just a fucking moron. The first conversation that we see between him and De Niro's character, his uncle, William Hale, where he says, call me King. And you can just tell that he sees that there's no light going on in this kid's head. He's like, all right, this is my puppet now. So easy to control. You like women? Yeah. You love money? Scorsese's already proven himself over and over and over again as the master of this particular kind of crime saga. Mm-hmm. I really think that Goodfellas makes a good parallel 
because Ray Liotta's Henry Hill is not that different than Ernest. Yeah. He's a bit of a roller and he's obviously much more charming and affable. But at the end of the day, he's also just a pawn. And when things don't work out the way that they're supposed to or the way that he wants to, he becomes expendable in a minute. He and his wife are fucking like, oh shit, we're going to get bumped off. And I really think that's what a big part of this movie is with Hale in particular, because it's about how he's so ruthless that he will just fucking axe anyone the minute that they have one shred of evidence on mm-hmm. him. He will have you killed and make it look like an accident. Mm-hmm. And even if it's sloppy work, you know, you get shot from the front instead of the back, he'll still get away with it. That is literally like the joke of the movie where it's like, I saw that clip on Twitter and was like, wow, that's really funny. I'm glad that he's got this almost improvisational rhythm going between his leads. What an entertaining movie this is going to be. And then you get into the movie and you learn the context of the murder of Henry Roan, which is who they're talking about there. And it is so profoundly fucked up to me that it's like, oh yeah, this is... I still don't really know how I feel about that. I still don't really know how I feel about... It's this Scorsese crime saga, which we associate with a movie like Goodfellas or Casino. You know, because Casino's a vile terrible act of violence towards everybody in that movie it's Mm -hmm. so brutal but it's really snappy and entertaining and here it's like all of that is still there it still moves really well it still has a sense of humor but it's like that has been siphoned out of it somehow and so it's all still there but it is so much more sobering and somber than that usually is kind of like the irishman but i think yeah it's really quite like the final hour of the irishman only throughout Mm -hmm. This movie just bleaches that snappy energy out of these characters and their behavior and their actions. You know, it's that that rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat. Hey, criminals are kind of cool. Which is like the biggest complaint. Because movies have always, always Mm -hmm. shown criminals to be pieces of shit. Right. But this one really takes it all the way into just the utter abject horror of a systemic act of genocide that was being carried out against the Elshage. There's a lot of violent moments in Scorsese's movies that are cool. There has never been anything as horrifying as when they pick up Molly's sister from the ground in the house where she was sleeping in that exploded. And the back of her head, yeah, the back of Rita's head just just falls off. Yeah. Bill Smith's still alive there, too. I have not seen an audience squirm like that in such a long time. I was ready to puke one creative choice that this movie makes that I didn't totally appreciate till after is that it shows you a montage of the dead long before we see any of these murders happen. Yeah. And it's just corpses, embalmed faces, lying peacefully. We hear their names. We hear facts such as murder not investigated. There's particularly, I think it might be the last one that you see is the death of Sybil Bolton. Oh, who yeah. is the topic of a 1994 book called The Deaths of Sybil Bolton by Dennis McCoffle, who is of Osage descent. He was a reporter. This book was a big part of Grant's research for Killers of the Flower Moon and is referenced mm-hmm. in that. And in the most recent printing, David Grant actually wrote the foreword for The yeah. Deaths of Sybil Bolton. So there mm-hmm. is a connection. But Sybil Bolton represents part of the reign of terror of murder that doesn't have anything to do with Hale's empire. At least it was never proven that it did. So it shows that the death is one, it's sobering and somber, that it happened to real people, and that whatever we see in this movie is meant to be a reflection of that first and foremost. And that beyond the core investigation, 
this goes wider and broader than that within this one period of time, the head rights in Osage County. Yeah. And then I think beyond that, it exists quite obviously within the history of the Native American genocide, yeah. the Trail of Tears, which is what pushed them not into Osage County. The Trail of Tears is what pushed them into Kansas. And then they were pushed out of Kansas into Oklahoma. So it's just like the continued mistreatment and murder of not just the Osage, but of all Native peoples in America. Yeah. So it really helps to frame this one narrative within that much larger context. Something the movie really drives home the point is you don't know how deep this goes, and that is absolutely terrifying. While contrasting that quite beautifully with those opening scenes where we're burying the sacred pipe. Oh my god, what a scene. Gorgeous. Beautiful looks into culture. Yeah. So yeah, I think maybe it's time to talk about the hopeful Best Actress winner. What a performance. God. Ellie Reichardt fans, we knew. We knew from certain women, and we knew from First Cow. <laughs> Molly Burkhardt, who is played by Lily Gladstone, is the heart and soul of the film. She doesn't have as much screen time as Ernest or as De Niro, but this movie revolves around her. She is its beating heart. One of the things that I found interesting as I went through the book, and it makes sense from the perspective of having seen the movie as well, there is a long period where Molly kind of goes off the radar. We don't really know what's happening to her. She's bedridden, she's ill, she's dying, and there just aren't records of it. And I think it's important, one of the reasons I keep going back to this grand book, is I think it's important to understand just how much of this is based on 100-year-old research from a time when mm -hmm. records were kept, but maybe not so much records about the Osage kept. Right. Like, there's a lot of dirty dealings as this story gets into. This entire film, to me, seems like it was built around the idea of giving Molly, Anna, Lizzie, Henry, Charlie, and all these different individuals who mm -hmm. were murdered a voice and a face. Something to remember yeah. that goes beyond just like what you can read in the records. Mm -hmm. You know, how did it feel, for instance, after Anna Brown came home drunk and her mother Lizzie was doting on her in the bed because she was the one that she always spoiled? Mm -hmm. How did it feel that night for the family when after so many hours nobody knew where she was? Right. She was just gone. Mm -hmm. And you just have to sit in their fear and their unknowing, or worse. You have to sit with what they likely know. And that's sort of a line that the movie's always walking on. Yeah. Right in the very beginning, we learn about a wasting sickness, which is afflicting Billy, which is the oldest sister of Molly and Arita, and afflicting Lizzie. What wasting sickness? They're being fucking poisoned. Mm -hmm. They're all being fucking poisoned. Being slowly murdered. Mm -hmm. There's one scene in particular that I want to focus on real quick. Yeah. All this ugliness. And yet there's a scene with Lizzie when she dies from this disease. And it is just such a beautiful and touching moment because Lizzie wakes up in this bed because they're out somewhere and there's spirits there. It's presumably her husband who has passed away by this point and her parents, but silently just gets up out of bed, has a smile on her face, is reconnecting with her loved ones and going on into whatever the next life has done in complete silence, in a movie filled with so much ugliness. It's one of the most beautiful things Scorsese has ever directed. I really enjoy the shot that jolts you out of that 
where we come back to the funeral and it is Molly mourning over her mother. Because I find that to be just as equally beautiful. It's obviously imbued with terrible pain and loss, but at the same time, it is mourning. And one of the things that we see over the course of this film, as this reign of terror goes on and gets worse, is that these burials get less and less ornamental. There's less food left out on the grave, reflecting how the culture is beginning to shift. And some of these memories and traditions are also starting to be lost. And so I think from a film perspective, you have to recognize that putting these ceremonies, putting these types of dances in front of a camera on a screen has a really big point of significance because this culture has been obliterated. What's left of them, in the words of their own people, is tatters. Now, they've managed to survive. The community still exists, Mm -hmm. but it is so important to have any sort of reckoning with this violence while at the same time celebrating that culture and showing how it endures even a hundred years after this tragedy. Mm -hmm. It is so lovingly crafted in those moments to honor and preserve Osage history. There's a scene before that that has a more ominous tone, but is no less beautiful when the owl comes Mm -hmm. into the house, she sees the owl, and then later on, Molly sees that same owl when she's in bed with the fever and the fires roaring outside. Just so many great poetic moments. I think it's kind of like we mentioned this. Scorsese, he's 80. He's not going to have that many more films left. Mm -hmm. People only live and get to work for so long. Yeah, I imagine that every movie he makes from now on is going to be touching with mortality like this, Mm -hmm. because these last two are, meaning The Irishman and Killers of the Flower Moon, are entirely swaddled up in death, mortality, and what it means to move on. This is something that happens to every Italian grandparent. (laughs) I also, I genuinely believe adapting Endo's silence changed him. Oh, for sure. There is a before and after moment. The before is Jordan Belfort and Wolf of Wall Street. Right. And then the after is these two. There was absolutely a radical shift. Shout out to everyone who saw Silence in a Theater, you, me, and, and I guess like six other people. It was completely five. When I saw it, I was the only one there. <laughs> and it was like going to church. I mean, it's literally like just being, uh, don't get me on silence. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's bring it back to Killers. This wonderful movie. I think that there has been some worthwhile criticism and I think we've tried to address it in our way without necessarily bringing it up, which is about, is there enough Molly Burkhart in this movie? Mm-hmm. Does she have enough agency or is she a little bit too reactive? I think I have a different opinion of that now that I've read the book than I did before. Uh-huh. Because when I saw the movie, I thought, eh, yeah, okay, she kind of is there for a while. So the character is diabetic character. Mm-hmm. The woman was diabetic. She has diabetes. Yes. And she's one of the very first people who gets to have insulin. One of the very first in the world. Delivered to her by a couple of doctors, brothers, very close to Hale, which should tell you everything you need to know about them. And even though she gets her insulin shots administered daily, not only is she not improving, but she seems to be getting worse. She seems to not be able to get out of bed. She's foggy. She's got these big bruises that are showing up wherever she's got the injection sites. And from that point in the movie, with the exception of a trip she takes later on, she really goes into kind of like a background mode as we are starting to learn more and more of the horrible machinations of this criminal empire. Right. It sounds like 
she's being poisoned almost. Mm-hmm. And worst of all, guess who's administering shots? Yeah. Her own husband. At first, it's the doctors. Mm-hmm. And then she pleads for it to be him, but he's still fucking poisoning her. That's actually kind of an interesting difference. Ernest Burkhart never admitted to this, which is in this movie that he never admitted to this. In fact, it's a key element of his character, I would say. Mm-hmm. But the movie's like, he did that shit. And I actually think a key element of this movie is about the notion of confession. You know, Scorsese the Catholic, right? Like about, can you be forgiven if you love and if you ask for forgiveness? And it's like, you can only be forgiven if you admit. Mm-hmm. Confess your sins. Yeah, exactly. Confess your ultimate betrayal and violation of what you could do to a partner in your marriage. Like, just, oh my God. But I'm curious in the sense of performances. I think this movie's got a great cast. I have some more things to talk about with the cast. I know that you really love Gladstone in this, and I know that you really love this movie. I'm curious of what you think about that criticism of Molly's character and how you feel like the movie handled that. It's a tricky balancing act because the movie does end up giving her more agency. Like that trip we talked about, yeah. Molly goes to Washington and begs President Coolidge, please, I am being poisoned. My people are dropping like flies. Please do something. And that's when the FBI goes in. Right. That did not happen. She was just at home sick being poisoned the whole time. Right. And I can understand some of the criticisms. But there are also some people who are basically saying, why wasn't she a girl boss? Right. Why didn't she slay all day? Right. And at what point, we need to remember, we're talking about a real woman. Right. And this is something when we talk about Priscilla, we are going to be diving it deep onto this topic, especially because of the way that people talk about Priscilla as if she was not still alive mm. and has her own opinions on everything that happened. Right. But again, this is a real person and life is not that simple. If it was a lesser actress, then I could buy some criticisms. Mm -hmm. But Gladstone is just that good. Again, we're basing this all off of 100-year-old history. We have what we have to work on, and that's it. We don't really have a lot of wiggle room. We have a little bit of wiggle room, as you just mentioned, but not a lot. And then I think it's the way that you get so immersed with her. You're with Molly, and let's just go through the list. Her sister, Minnie, who's married to Bill Smith, dies of this mysterious wasting sickness, probably poisoned. Mm -hmm. Bill Smith then marries her younger sister, Rita. Like, almost immediately does this. Shouts to Jason Isbell, who plays that character, the country musician. He was good. Then, I mean, obviously, you've also got Charlie Whitehorn and a bunch of other people exterior to the family. But then Anna dies. She gets executed. Anna gets shot in the head. And they find her body out in the woods. After being out with her brother-in-law, Brian Burkhart, which they know pretty much from the beginning, even though it Mm -hmm. takes some time to prove that that was the case. And he was never charged for the crime because they went after Kelsey Morrison instead. So then Anna is executed. Lizzie dies, as we mentioned. And then Rita and Bill's house is blown up by nitroglycerin. So like we have watched as every member of her family has been systemically eliminated around her while she is also now being poisoned. And it's just like the absolute fear that you have for this woman and her safety. Evil clouds her heart. The scene where she's in the basement of her home and she sees Ernest come back from the bombed out house and she knows immediately that her last living family member is gone and she lets out the most primal scream you've ever heard of just endless pain this was not adapted into the film and it's also not part of tom white's case it was something that was discovered later by gran which is that 
in fact, Molly and her two children, Cowboy, which was the name of their, it's the nickname of their oldest son, and then Elizabeth, who is the name of their daughter. So the three of them were meant to be at Bill and Rita's house that night, thus getting them all in one fell swoop, yep. which was the reason that they were using the nitroglycerin in the first place. Right. That's another little country music shout because the characters, Sturgill Simpson is Henry Grammer, just like a rodeo guy. He's like this moonshine runner criminal that Hale works with. I just think it's actually kind of interesting how this movie has these different castings of country music stars that go alongside with this native cast to really help bring us into the world in some ways of like mm-hmm. 1920s Oklahoma without right. really feeling like it throws stars at you. Another couple of good examples is it's got like these two actors from No Country for Old Men, one of them who plays the guardian of Bali, mm-hmm. who's the dude from the coin toss scene. The way he keeps popping up at different points throughout the narrative also really feeds into the conspiracy, which I thought was really clever. Him, the doctors. So again, he's a guardian over Molly. The whole deal there is like, they can have these people, typically the full-blooded Osage, marked as incompetent, which means that they have to have the government, via this guardian, sign off on not just receiving a payment, Mm -hmm. but using any type of money. So they have to explain their grocery bills to these people. Yep. If I buy a car, I have to explain it to this guy. And this is a system that is just ripe for abuse. It's a conservatorship. Yes, exactly. A shout out to the book that I read this week, written by the one and only Miss Britney Spears. These guys would buy a car for $500, one of these guardians, and be like, hey, I'll sell you this car for $2,500. And then because this guy is who controls your money, you can't go buy a car on your own without this guy signing off. So this is the only way you're getting a car. Right. Basically just putting $2,000 in this guy's pocket. Mm-hmm. And in many, many cases, these guardians are the very people, other than their blood relatives, who would have the head rights. And so if you went through the ledgers, you'd have a guardian who had 13 Osage, and 10 of them would be dead during this reign of terror, and they would be the executor of those estates. Right. All the money would go to them. Uh-huh. <laughs> Any insurance Please policies fuck. would go out to them. Mm-hmm. The Henry Road shit this movie just makes me want to scream. It makes me want to scream. Mm-hmm. That character, I actually forgot to mention it when I was going through Molly, because he and Molly were married. So her husband winds up shot. Technically are married. And still are, right. Yeah, just wasn't recognized by America. Right, She was able to get married again within white culture, basically, walking within those two worlds. Exactly. Roan showing up dead, shot in the back of the head, is just like one of the most tragic. His character and then Anna Brown, they both are shown to have certain struggles with alcoholism, Mm -hmm. which is moonshine during this Prohibition era, all of which is run by white people and is a common source of poisoning Mm -hmm. for these different murder schemes, just to throw that out there. But What I see when I look at these characters is just like this lost, desperate, doesn't have any real hope. Like with Henry Roan, that comes to a head because his wife is mingling with some white guy, allegedly. Like that's the thing is like that's a rumor that goes around town, but we don't even really know. It could just be some shit that Hale's trying to stir up because Hale gets the $25,000 insurance policy on this guy. There's just a certain like... Even without the schemes and the killing over this head right situation, mm-hmm. even though this is a place where all this money's coming through, there are just these people who are living in abject misery mm-hmm. because of what they've lost, because they live in a world, 
even though this is their land, they're second class citizens yep. to these white settlers who have just fucking shown up. And that's the life that they live. And their reward for all their unhappiness and suffering is to be murdered. Yep. Uh, it's just fucking heartbreaking. It really is. It is. And that leads to maybe the most infuriating scene in the film, where after Henry is murdered, you cut to hail at the bankers trying to collect that insurance policy. And they're like, it's a little suspicious. Like, do you know who I am? Right. Like, just immediately demanding his money, not even caring about this guy that he allegedly considered a friend. He was supposed to have been Henry Rhodes best friend. And that I think is the darkest element of this entire story is that for all of his wickedness, you could make the case that King Hale is the devil. In fact, he has been called that by people within this community, deservedly so. He's had his image removed from certain public museum spaces, not mm-hmm. because they want to blight out the memory of his crimes, but because they literally cannot forget the evils that he sowed within their community. And yet for all of that, he probably treated them better than every white person before or since up to a certain point, at least. Mm -hmm. Even though that was his facade that he used for evil, that still positioned him as the nicest white guy that you knew. Which is horrifying. And that's the whole scheme. Mm -hmm. That is the entire scheme, is that since the whole world treats you so rotten, if I give you just a little bit of kindness... Mm -hmm. You'll give me everything. I'll take even more than what you give me. Your life. A guy who burns his own cattle and his own ranch to collect a $30,000 insurance policy. That leads to one of the best lines of the film. The line from John Red to the insurance oh, policy. Tonka means. Great performance. Yes. So hot. Call, Call me. me. <laughs> <laughs> but the guy was just unspeakably evil. And I'll lay my cards out on the table right now. I think this is De Niro's best performance since Raging Bull. I am very close to agreeing. The only reason I'm not quite there is because I think his performance in The Irishman is like just as good, more or less. There's just, uh, you know what I love about him in Killers so much is that Scorsese refuses to tell you what the truth about this guy is. What does he really feel? How much of it is just a show? Is he... The incarnation of evil, does he have good in his heart? Is he ready to kill Ernest, his own nephew, when push comes to shove? Well, and it's just such a vile piece of work. I mean, it's amazing how good those two are. And I really would say that those two, the Irishman and Killers, are two and three in some order behind Jake LaMotta for me. That's the three. Those are three bad people. What's crazy is that, like, almost no matter what, like, Rupert Pupkin and Heat, Neil in Heat, mm-hmm. these are things that I'm putting in, like, fourth or fifth place. Right. When I'm thinking about, like, Godfather Part Two behind this for his performances, you know, Corleone, it's like, wow, what a turn. Taxi Driver, Deer Hunter, Goodfellas, Casino, like, just Warwick boom, boom, boom. Grandpa, no. <laughs> Midnight Run for the people who are in it. Jokes aside, just incredible to still be churning out jaw-dropping turns like this at his age. What I think is crazy is that a couple months ago, I thought that Robert Downey Jr. was untouchable for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, And not only do I think he's not untouchable, I think that he should lose to this. (laughs) Maybe that's a good pivot for... I think this movie compares with Oppenheimer in like a bunch of really cool and exciting ways. One of which we might include Glazer's The Zone of Interest, which neither of us have seen as kind of 
these movies that explore deep-seated, painful historical atrocities, such as the native genocide, Mm -hmm. the atomic bombing of Japan, and just nuclear development in general, obviously the Holocaust in the case of the zone of interest, from the perspective of its perpetrators. In Oppenheimer, it's from the perspective of the American scientists who created the bomb, Mm -hmm. and then from the federal government that were involved in dropping it and developing that program. Right. One of them takes place in Los Alamos, New Mexico, a native land. This one takes place in Osage County, Oklahoma, native land. Mm -hmm. And they both are about different periods of shaping the early 20th century. And I think that they're just like both these three-hour monumental epics of American history that deal with the dirty, seedy, disgusting underbelly of it that compare basically like down the line, like Oscar categories wise. And I imagine that they will have to be going toe to toe in some of them, such as Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Cinematography. I was curious, I wanted to kind of go through a couple of these and just see how you thought that they compared. I don't necessarily want to do every category. And to be clear, these are our preferences, not necessarily our predictions. But like, let's take, for example, Robert Downey Jr. versus Robert De Niro. I assume you're on the same page with me here. De Niro. Yeah. Downey, love you. Amazing. Your best shit in literally multiple decades, IMO. Happy you're back. Best actor, DiCaprio, Murphy. I'll go with Murphy on this one. I would have to agree. It's just too much at the center of the film, really. You know, mm-hmm. it's too much of what Oppenheimer is. I think the actress, supporting actress, they miss each other. Yeah. Want goes supporting, Gladstone goes best goes actress. Lead. Yeah. I am rooting for her to win. I will bribe whoever I have to bribe to make it happen. How about adapted screenplay? I think this one's a little trickier. That's a tough one. For me, I think I go Oppenheimer. It's a little bit more about the feat. It's about how it takes all these different things from over the course of this big book and decades of history and just sort of lines them up in an arrow and shoots you through it. And I think it's also the reason why all love to Thelma Schoonmaker. I would probably also go with Jennifer Lame for the edit on Oppenheimer, personally. See, I would go Oppenheimer for the screenplay, but in both editing and cinematography, I would go with Killers. Cinematography, I agree. This is Rodrigo Prieta's best shot film. Even over Silence the Irishman, Barbie. Yeah. <laughs> the scene of Hale's farm burning and just like the smoke patterns in the air. Oh, Lord. Is going to be burned into my brain forever. He does these almost like, to me, they register as Kubrickian pans where he's like bringing you down the street and it's like a hard 90 degree turn and then we launch mm-hmm. into the store. All sorts of incredible camera movement that are all like subtle. They never take away from the drama or the feeling or the impact of the scene. Everything feels incredibly natural, authentic. But yeah, those shots of the flames and the workers, they harken right back to Goodfellas. Yeah. This is Scorsese's visualization of hell here with Hale presiding over the flames. Mm-hmm. There's this shot that I've been obsessed with since the trailer. And it's in the Masonic Lodge where Leo gets spanked. and you see the black and white tiles of the floor reflected in De Niro's glasses so that he becomes like Mm -hmm. the chess master. Right. Gorgeous. So I would go Prieto as well. This one's hard for me. Production design. Titanic heavyweight bout between those two. I think you gotta go Killers just for the scope. Killers. It's the whole fucking community. But I love with Oppenheimer that production story about how 
they couldn't build everything that they wanted to, mm-hmm. so no one scrapped it, let them have the extra time that they needed to build the stuff the right way, and then shot it on a shorter schedule. Mm-hmm. So I think that's maybe more a reflection on his direction than the production design. But I think that considering those limitations, so many of those spaces in Alamos mm-hmm. with the big tower are just seared into my memory. So really tough. I would also go with killers in costume design as well. Only because all of the Osage outfits are just so beautifully detailed. Like every single blanket. Oh my god. Yeah. So I could maybe split that and go Oppie production, killers costumes. Killers mm-hmm. definitely taking costumes. I think killers for production design for me as well. Score. Goronson versus Robbie Robertson. You know, honestly, I'm going to go Robertson. I think that's right. I just kind of like that for the story. He's got Native Heritage, the career-long collaboration with Scorsese. And very sadly, his final score as he has passed away. But what a final work. Such a testament. And it's so omnipresent. It really like shapes how every scene of the movie feels. I could go either way, but I think I probably agree. I think the Goronson score is probably like a better standalone piece of music. Mm-hmm. I was going to pop on some headphones and listen to a song. Right. But this is a little bit more, you know, the film score. And then the final two. The big two. Director. Scorsese or Chrissy? Marty or Chris? Scorsese. What gives you the edge? All right. So if you have not seen this movie, run away, turn this off, skip over for the next couple of minutes. Because I need to talk about this movie's ending, which yeah. like snapped my jaw open. And it's, it's yeah. just been hanging there for weeks. So the way that the novel goes is that David Grant goes out to Osage County. And he talks with all the grandchildren great-grandchildren survivors all that this movie ends at a live recording of a true crime radio show Mm -hmm. that really happened yeah the fbi sponsored it it was the lucky strike radio hour and they used it to promote fbi cases to build the brand essentially a little bit of marketing and then you know mention lucky strike cigarettes as many times as possible nothing like a good lucky strike cigarette to these people but, you know, they play up the silly voices, over-the-top audio effects for stuff, xylophones and all that, you know, clop, clop, clop for, like, horses or whatnot. And they talk about what happened to everybody. Burkhart goes to jail. Hale goes to prison. Both of them given life sentences. Both of them, of course, get out good behavior. Yeah. Probably thanks to uh, Brendan Fraser, who I will say for his five seconds of screen time, is great. I want to talk a little bit more trial, but we can get back to it. We'll circle back to the trial. But the movie goes through what happened. You have all these different members of the cast of the true crime talk show talking about it. And then Scorsese himself comes out to talk about Molly and gives her her eulogy because she eventually did succumb to her diabetes and died a lot earlier than Hale did or before Ernest did. Right. Ernest died as recently as 1986. Like, that's how yeah. close we're talking about. This yes. man could have seen Top Gun. He was listening to the Beastie Boys in his trailer with Brian. He was also allowed back into Osage County. Which is insane. Even though both he and Hale were kicked out of Oklahoma permanently by the results of their respective murder convictions. Mm-hmm. But Scorsese comes out and gives Molly her eulogy and notes that when she passed away, the newspapers made not a single mention of the murders of anyone in her family. And so you have this moment where Scorsese is not only skewering the rise of true crime as like entertainment, you know, you have your CSIs, your SVUs, all that stuff. You have 
crime podcasts where people talk about murders and deaths and rapes so flippantly. The FBI story starring James Stewart. You have the YouTube videos where someone's doing a little makeup tutorial while talking about how someone was skinned alive. So not only is Scorsese skewering all of this bullshit, he's also skewering himself. And David Grant. And the lineage of the true crime book, the director who makes the adaptation. You know, somebody like David Fincher, who's out there filming the Zodiac murders Mm -hmm. like it's seven. Like it's the peak of exciting entertainment. People like me being like, yes, God, yes. It's this jaw-dropping moment of self-reflection on Mm -hmm. not just him for making this movie, but for his entire career. Mm -hmm. Digging into that, what you were talking earlier, like reflecting on mortality and the times that pass because... Well, I'm not going to say he's going to drop dead any day now, but there will be a time when Scorsese is no longer with us, and he's taking this opportunity in the film to really reflect on that, but also to put the film back on Wally, that this is all about her. And then it transitions out. So beautiful. A traditional drum chant dance by current day Osage saying, we are still here. Our stories are still here. We are alive. Listen to us. To me, it spoke to this idea of okay so we have this film we have this big movie star leonardo dicaprio we have this other historical movie star robert de niro upcomer lily gladstone historic american director oscar winner although way belated martin scorsese 200 million dollar crime epic and instead of making it this like flashy exciting funny hilarious thing it's quite funereal and sobering And we get to the very end, and then he criticizes his own place within the telling of the story. And then he hands it over to the surviving Osage, as if to say, okay, you've learned the history, Mm -hmm. you have gone through the emotional experience, you have maybe taken into consideration many of the copious spiritual themes of this movie, from Lizzie's passing into the great unknown, to what I think is like, seriously right at the heart of what Scorsese's doing which is about Burkhart and Hale being he's like you know Hale is a religious man he's a church going man mm-hmm. but it's all false right when I see Burkhart up on the stand at the end of this movie I see a person sitting in a confession or when he's talking to Tom White played by Jesse Plemons through the screen door mm-hmm. he looks like he's in the confessional booth yeah so we've gone through all that and now we hand it over we say now the story is for them to tell. Go back, read different accounts like the deaths of Sybil Bolt authors, such as John Joseph Matthews, who is an Osage author. There's Fred Grove, who is also an Osage writer, mostly of Westerns, although he wrote a book that is about the reign of terror called The Years of Fear. Mm-hmm. So there very much are poets, fiction authors, other essayists. There's a book called Bestiary, which is a collection of poems. One of the poems is about the murder of Anna Brown from the perspective of Molly Burkhardt. Mm-hmm. So particularly in literature, in the medium of books, you can go out and you can go support these authors and learn their stories, hear their voices. And this is just one of many, many tribes. Of course, you got authors all over the five nations. And it's not just literature either. That's just one of many, many, many ways that you can hear the story from another yeah. voice. And I think that that's what the ending of this movie left me with. I wasn't sure how this movie was going to end, but for Scorsese to have that moment and to basically guide the audience to do that, for me, is what puts it over the top Mm. as his best film since Raging Bull. 
it almost takes his sensibility that he has for the world cinema project yeah. and puts it maybe for the first time mm-hmm. into his own cinema. I mean, you have Tun Dun, yeah. which is about the Dalai Lama, mm-hmm. Silence movie that I love, which is set in Japan in the Shogun right. era. But that movie's about these priests and they're in this world and they realize that maybe the world is inhospitable to their culture and to their beliefs. And so it's still mostly about these European characters. This is the one where it's, here's the Scorsese story. It's about this crime that exists within this context. And to get this context, you have to listen to far more than just Scorsese. It becomes a far larger Mm -hmm. chorus of voices as depicted by the dozens and dozens and dozens of people, hundreds of people in those massive circles as we pull away. In some ways, you could almost view silence as like a dry run for this. I think so. I really do. With silence, because everything is so much more rooted in the faith of these people being confronted by an external world that they don't understand, there's just something where he gets to kind of throw it into the sixth year of it a little bit and just get really intense and forthright. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why, for me, Oppenheimer remains my preferred just of these two, yeah. and my favorite movie of the year, I think it comes down to the fact that because J. Robert Oppenheimer is such a big, important historical figure, as we've talked about over and over and over. You can go completely subjective with his story so that the bombing of Hiroshima is something that he is up in his kitchen thinking about, but does not know has happened until he hears Harry S. Truman on the radio. Mm -hmm. And so the movie can go full throttle without having to get into this material where he would have to take the throttle off and be more sobering and not make a big, grotesque spectacle out of this horrible tragedy where 200,000 people were burnt to a crisp and died. He doesn't have to deal with that because of the way that he roots it and the way that he can use our memory and our understanding to evoke that horror Mm -hmm. without having to make it into inception, basically. I think that Scorsese does not have that option. Because Tom White is not that significant, and Ernest Burkhart is not that significant, Mm -hmm. and Hale, for all his murderous misdeeds, is not that significant. And so he, meaning Scorsese and this movie, they have to root everything onto the Osage. And I think it, it has this sort of removed because of the fact that it's like that. And it needs it. I don't think that it could be any other way, but it feels like there's a certain distance. But I think that ending comes as close to bridging the gap as you can, because Mm -hmm. it acknowledges why that distance exists. And it's because not just the lucky strike, but throughout this entire saga in the papers, this was sensationalized. This was a fucking circus. When these men, Ernest Burkhart, Bill Hale, Kelsey Morrison went to trial, first of all, they had to go to the state trial. So they were in the Osage County Courthouse in Oklahoma for Burkhart's trial, where he's up there for blowing up his brother-in-law and his Mm sister-in-law. And during that time, it's just, it's a madhouse. Like, it's complete chaos. There's a moment I really love where the movie hints at this merging of past and present and Mm. the circus act of it all. When they're at the theater and they see news footage of yes the Tulsa bombing when this wealthy black neighborhood was wiped out they were murdered their homes were blown up and destroyed mm-hmm. and the whole time at the bottom of the footage it says that it comes from Fox News mm-hmm. and it's just like one of those jolting moments of electricity where you realize that not much has changed 
Right. This is just such a sensational thing because money's involved, murder is involved, sometimes very dramatic mm-hmm. murders with these explosions. Yeah. In cold blood, people killing their own blood relatives. We hear Kelsey Morrison, played by Lewis Cancelme, one of the most unbelievable names of all time, ask his attorney, Hey, by the way, these kids I adopted, if they die, could I get their head rights? And the attorney looks at him and goes, You understand that you just asked me if you could murder your stepchildren. It's one of the funniest jokes of the year, but you have to laugh because of how utterly bald faced. Yeah. When that character is up on the stand talking about how he was the one that put the bullet into Anna Brown, he's just like, he just set her up. And I went, Psh. did you move the body? No, we just left. You just left her where she was like, yep, we just left. And you just feel your soul draining out of you. It's so cold. And I think that part of the sensationalism is because it's all this drama but it's about second-class citizens. As someone says in the movie, it's easier to convict someone for killing a dog than it would be for killing an Osage. Mm -hmm. Because even though they have all this wealth, they don't have any power. They don't have any respect within society. I think the one other kind of soft spot for this movie would be its trial scenes. And when I read the book, I understood exactly why that was. It's because it's trying to streamline so much of the bureaucratic bullshittery that everyone was trying to go through. And the way that Hale, even behind bars, was trying to pay people Mm -hmm. off, was trying to threaten juries, was trying to get people murdered so that he would not have to face these crimes. Perhaps wisely, the film does keep very minimum. You know, you have basically just John Lithgow, who's great. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And of course, Brendan Fraser in his first post-Oscar performance, basically playing the lawyer from B-movie. Yeah. Like, just full Southern huckster, yep. dumb boy. Like, right, right. Just pure circus act, but that's exactly what those lawyers were like. That's where I think, and again, like, I don't know how you would handle this because it's a little complicated because what has happened is they are no longer in a federal court, they're in a state court. And that state court is much more chaotic. It's much more able to be bent and poked and prodded right. by Hale and his gang of thugs. And really the entire city. Because mm-hmm. there's really... A lot of different people, not just within his gang, but within the entire sphere of this situation, that just don't want anything to be brought to justice because that'll bring my crimes to light, or it'll bring this person's crimes to light, or bring our entire lifestyle, culture, and community into the spotlight and put them on trial. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the value of what Scorsese's film does by changing the approach. And I think it could have been bolstered a little bit more in those trial things, but what I have to consider is that Oppenheimer is a court movie and Killers of the Flower Moon is a court movie and Anatomy of a Fall is a court movie. So maybe I just really love court movies and that's just a thing. (laughs) That could be your thing. For this movie, the really powerful images come from inside the jailhouse, inside these big barred walls in the shadow when he falls to the Mm -hmm. ground when he learns his daughter died or when he tells Hale he's not going to work for him anymore. Mm -hmm. Or that shot from the trailer can you see the wolves in this picture where he goes in with Brendan Fraser and it's the entire room staring at him in the dark? Oof, yeah. That's fucking chilling. Just a ghastly display of evil. I've said a million times, just kind of in joking, that shot reminds me of Rosemary's Baby. And this entire film reminds me of that approach because it's like a movie of people staring, yeah. leering. Like when they go to see Anna's body, there's this whole circus down there mm-hmm. and there's dozens and dozens of people that are watching Ernest and Molly mm-hmm. one by one. Who knows the details of what happened? Are the murderers here with us? Because 
in that case, they were. Brian was there. Kelsey was there. Mm-hmm. Like, right there at the scene, taking the bullet out of the fucking body. But even in all of that, like, her sorrow isn't private. The scene in the trailer, it's narrated over by, you know, they're like buzzards circling our people. They're down at the train, and you see the fucking oil man coming off for this, you know, lot auction that they're probably all there for. Mm-hmm. And you just, you feel watched. Like, everybody's watching to see like oh is she gonna slip oh is today the day she dies we make the move on her you know yeah they're all marked by these predators by these scavengers it's tough to watch you feel that fear and dread and pain yeah. and i think that's what puts it over oppenheimer and every other movie this year for me because that is such a challenge it is significantly so not maybe a movie that you're going to go watch three times in 70 millimeter. <laughs> yeah, no, I've seen a lot of people who are like, oh, I want to do round two. I'm like, I still have an emotionally recovered. Like, give me yeah. another week or two, and then we can talk about a second round. My round two was reading the book. <laughs> and now I feel like I'm like, okay, I would like to see it now a second time mm-hmm. after reading it, yeah. after having a little bit of distance and time to collect my thoughts. I have a feeling I'll appreciate it more, mm-hmm. more fully. Yeah certain things are going to hit me more emotionally than they did the first time where I was kind of figuring it out. I had read the book before going into yeah. this, so I knew the horrors that light ahead. I feel like in that second trailer in particular, they lead you to think that there's going to be more of like a retribution, more of a violent mm. retribution maybe, and it's like, yeah, that's just not what this is. Yeah, no, when I saw that Wolf of Wall Street style trailer, I was like, yeah, you are lying to your audience. And it's going to get honestly, people in the door. But, appreciate it. People in the door, people who are rioting, if they don't get a chance to go be. Oh, I can't even fucking handle those people. I really can't. I said it at the top <laughs> before I was talking about Anatomy of a Fall. No one empathizes with this more than I do. I get it. I drink a lot of water. I like my bathroom breaks. I get it. I understand. It's inconvenient. It may even be uncomfortable if you choose to sit and not go. But that is sometimes just what you have to deal with. Imagine you're a fucking denizen going to the opera in Vienna, and you're like, uh, excuse me, did we not get an intermission? Put the shut the fuck up. You're witnessing art. You're in a venue for art with adults. You know how to handle yourself. And if you gotta go, just go. Like, it's fine. No one is gonna shoot you. I was literally thinking about this in terms of this movie, Killers of the Flower Moon. It's a movie that does not lend itself to having an intermission cut into it, obviously. There's not really an obvious point where you can just leave because it was cut to be seen on one sitting. Right. But the thing about a movie like this is almost everything is reinforced in some other part of the movie. Mm. If we look at, for example, Henry Roan, the insurance policy that's taken out, his murder, the fact that they try to cover it up and make it look like a suicide, except that he was shot in the wrong part of the head. At different points, different characters, such as Hale, such as the doctor, such as Molly, mm-hmm. admit that he was sad. They talk about his despondence. There's a scene where he's laying in front of Hale's fire. Yep. There's a scene after he's died where Molly is warning him. So if you went to the bathroom during one of those critical moments, there are three more to back you up. I promise. Because that's how movies work. That's the brilliance of Marty and Thelma. It might sound bitchy, but like it's just annoying that a movie like this gets reduced to people whining. To me, I just think it's completely an immature perspective to have. If it's that big of a deal, wait until it's on streaming. Don't go see it. We won't miss you. It's not that you need to sit still and deal with this. It's just that like, I think it's such a bad faith argument that is propelled by so many people who aren't even going to see this, who don't even have any interest in seeing it, 
like it's going to be on Apple in a few weeks, I'm sure, right? They haven't announced, but it will be on this streaming service at some point. By Christmas, you'll be able to buy this movie on digital. Yeah, Christmas is probably when it would go out. I don't know. Fucking cry more. But I just want to say, like, for me, this goes toe-to-toe with Drive My Car as, like, the mm. film of the decade. It is just a phenomenal work of art that just completely took my breath away. It's a hugely challenging film on a number of levels to get made, to make, to establish the tone that feels not exploitive, that feels respectful, but still engaging. There's going to be a little bit of gray zone for a lot of people who see this, who I think could go all the way as far as to be like, you know, this who's that fucking kid. His name lights camera Jackson, where he's like, it's a crime thriller with no suspense. And I'm like, I don't think that's wrong. Yeah. It's how you interpret that and it's how Mm -hmm. that makes you feel and to me this really does seem like such a cool movie it's about sitting with that discomfort yeah it's about sitting with that challenging idea and not being given any sort of easy relief of like oh we did it Mm -hmm. yeah there's no easy way out on any of this it's just something that you have to soak in and it's a cold bitter soak in many ways but i think it's one that you leave and you feel I don't know. This this kind of left a heavy feeling on me, to be honest. But it was something I felt like was enriching at the same time. It felt spiritually fulfilling in a way. Like, I felt reawakened almost. It's not really, like, in any way similar thematically to either of these, but I have Vortex and Memoria on a similar position on my decade list. I like this a little more mm-hmm. than either of those. But it's that same kind of, like, life-affirming, death-affirming, you know, I saw somebody compare that scene that you spoke of, Lizzie's death, where mm-hmm. she moves on. Like, that has that Joe Wirasetakul, you know, mysterious object that dude is in yes. the World Cinema Foundation projects. <laughs> you can tell there's a little bit of a mm-hmm. little bit of influence there, maybe. It's the closest that any American film's got to Wirasetakul's style. Easily, yeah. That side by side with the gang violence and the extreme darkness, mm-hmm. that's what gives it the beauty that it has. It's that life enduring. It's the culture enduring the fire and still having its roots and still being able to take in the sunlight. That's a scene I'll be thinking about, honestly, for the rest of my life. Yeah. What a special movie. Just being able to make it on this scale is just so... Like, if we talk about Reichard and Meek's cutoff, right? It's just such a minuscule, Mm -hmm. small-scale, independent thing. That's a movie that I've always admired how it deals with the similar conflicts of the white settlers and the natives and how complicated and really one-sided of a confrontation that often was in that kind of searcher's vein, but like even more austere and psychological, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's small and it's intimate. And I love that about that movie, but this gets to do it on such a wide canvas. And that's so awesome. Also, I love that Scorsese has been basically going around and being like, you guys should watch the films of Kelly (laughs) Reichardt. He's after my own heart with that. I am very much impressed with his ability to connect to younger audiences. Like the opening night for this, 46% of it was people under the age of 35. Do we have Francesca Scorsese to thank for this? TikTok God. (laughs) Francesca Scorsese is a goddamn genius. Yeah, absolutely. Getting that man out there on the internet, asking him what slay and (laughs) eight means like. But also just to spread his love of film in a new format. That will get people to listen, get people to watch this movie, get people to watch the movies that he loves. One of the inadvertent 
benefits of the ongoing actor strike because the studios refuse to pay people what they're worth is that we've gotten to see Christopher Nolan and Martin Scorsese kind of be the front men for marketing these mm-hmm. movies. And that has led yeah. to a lot of candid interviews where Christopher Nolan says some shit like he loves Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. <laughs> It puts them front and center, which is a nice thing. It is always great to hear from them. And yeah. of course, you know, hopefully the strike ends soon. Yes. They've been working all week continuously on a deal. So fingers crossed. But it is yeah. always incredibly special to hear Scorsese share his passion with the world. And since we're probably not going to have too many chances left, yeah. look it all in. One other note there on that strike is that one of the more disappointing things is that Gladstone means... The other native cast members have not gotten to be as front and center during yeah. this movie's marketing campaign. That is all the more reason, in my opinion, to go and see this so that you can see their incredible work and how much they contributed. I mean, there was Osage talent in front of the camera, behind the camera, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Teaching Gladstone that language so that she could do this part mm-hmm. with authenticity. And it really shows. Yeah. Even with their own reservations about the story yeah. and the way that it was presented, because that guy who taught her the language at he had his own reservations about the film. Yeah. But I think it makes it all the more beautiful that these voices were not ignored. Agreed. And they've gotten to be a part of that discussion after the fact with those types mm-hmm. of criticisms. That particular individual, extremely thoughtful. And, you know, he said that he felt that Scorsese depicted the Osage with dignity, respect, grace, which is what it was going for. So I think that's an important thing to note. Within the context of his criticism, right. there is also this acknowledgement that a lot of care and work went into this. It's a question of how do we frame these stories, but I think that this is one of the most thoughtful movies in recent memory about that very question. Mm-hmm. You know, those final shots, they remind me a lot of The Fablements, yeah. where he talks to John Ford, walks out, and the camera corrects about this idea that even in this beautiful, reflective twilight of their careers, these guys still have something to learn. And what does that say about us? Right. And what does that say optimistically about this country and our people because we've come from so much destruction and so much pain but we can always learn no matter how much we know no matter how much our careers have been defined by the good fellows in the wolf of wall streets there's still a time to grow and learn even at the very end and that means that as long as we are alive as long as you know the memory of the past is alive you can shape history it's just a really beautiful thought that really could have only been conjured in this late period of Martin Scorsese's career. You make this movie 20 years ago as Gangs in New York. Like, I probably say that it's a good movie, but it's not Exactly. And there's something so beautiful about that for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Watch Gangs in New York. That movie's good. I don't give a shit. (laughs) It's good. That's a lonely island of yours to die on. I'll take it. That's fine. I love Martin Scorsese. It's my favorite director. And it's just, it's really a blessing to have one of his movies in theaters like this. It's been so great getting to talk about it. So thanks for coming on to discuss. I think our next talk is probably going to be about Sofia Coppola's Priscilla, which I'll be seeing next week. So who knows? We'll probably come up with some more stuff to talk about by then. So thank you guys all for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody. Ciao.